be seated. Danny, if you would come and get this for me. We begin in Genesis chapter 18 this morning. Genesis chapter 18, a familiar passage of scripture, but with a portion of it that is often overlooked as we're looking at the broader context of the passage. Genesis chapter 18 is the story when God and two angels visit Abraham, uh, and the overarching theme, the overarching story, is that they are on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah to judge them, to see whether the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is what the ears of the Lord have heard. It's strange to us. We know that God is omniscient, that he knows everything, and yet he takes particular care in this passage to come down to earth to come by the saints. It's interesting in this passage that God, who already knew the sin of Sodom and already knew the state of Lot, could very well have simply spoken to Lot in a vision and said, get out. But instead, he chooses to personally come down. And while Lot doesn't see God himself, a theophany, Abraham does. But in the midst of this passage, Abraham sees him. God makes a promise to him and tells him that, that in a year, according to the season of life, that he's going to bear a son. This is a child of promise, Isaac. And then he says this in Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16. And the men, that is the angels that were there with the Lord, the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. Abraham's taking them there. He's guiding them as a good host would. And the Lord said, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Now pay attention. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. The scripture tells us that God's reasoning, God's reasoning for coming down to Abraham and telling him what he was about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah was that he knew that Abraham would raise his children right. That's interesting. God knew that Abraham would be the father that God needed him to be, that God wanted him to be, to raise his children so that not only Abraham would do right and have faith, but then Isaac would do right and have faith, and then Isaac's children would do right and have faith all the way down the line. So he knew that Abraham would be a good father. Today we're considering the subject of biblical fatherhood. Not a great surprise, considering that it is Father's Day, but it is the next logical step in our study on the biblical family. As we've said before, we believe that the Bible is the only rule of faith and practice. That's right. So anything we teach, anything we hear, anything we read must be brought up against the scriptures and considered in the light of the Bible. Right? Paul was the one who said, if we, even if I, the Apostle Paul, come back to you and preach any other gospel than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Even Paul said, if I come back and somehow I have fallen from this faith and I am preaching a different gospel, take what I tell you back to the word of God. And when you realize I'm no longer preaching the gospel that is scriptural, then let me be accursed. That's a pretty strong statement. 
So we believe that we must go to the scriptures. We must know the scriptures for ourselves. We must interpret them by scripture, with scripture, right? No scriptures of any private interpretation. And when we hear, when we listen, when we guide our lives by principles, those principles must be rooted and grounded in the word of God. So if we look outside the church, we see a lot of versions of fatherhood, and none of them are good, right? It's been decades now since the media has decided to portray fatherhood in a negative light, a very negative light. All right, you can watch all the sitcoms, and I don't recommend that, but you watch any of the sitcoms from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and, all, and so on, and you catch nary a family where the father is in control, in control of himself, doing wisely, acting wisely, and guiding his family. All right, what you see is fathers that are at best bungling idiots that mean well, but do stupid things all the time, and their wives are constantly having to clean up for them. And then the children are the ones running the family with this wry look on their face like, yeah, I mean, mom and dad think they know what they're doing and we're just kind of going along with that. That's not the scriptural picture of fatherhood. That's not what God saw in Abraham. The first thing that he says is that a father commands. Abraham would command. That's a, that's a term that's not very popular these days, the idea of a father commanding his children. We don't command our children. We're supposed to guide them and help them, you know, help them, you know, maximize their creativity. Well, yes. But what this world says is freedom is in fact bondage. If I leave my children to the foolishness that is bound within their hearts, if I do not command them so that they learn discipline, so that they learn faith, so that, so that they learn love. They will be slaves to the sin nature that is inside of them. So when we argue that scripturally a father is to command his children, we're not saying that a father is to be a tyrant, forcing his children to do what he wants to do for his own benefit. Rather, a father is a man that loves his children and his God enough to guide and direct them, to set boundaries that he will not let them cross so that they have time to learn faith, to learn discipline, to learn what is right and wrong so that, that when they go out into the world, they have a character that is set by their father's commands. We know that the scriptural command for children to obey their parents in the Lord only lasts for a season of time. But the Ten Commandments tells us that we are always to honor our father and our mother. So Abraham is a man that God knew would command his family. And he says that there are two things that I know he is going to command his family to do. The first thing in verse 18, I'm sorry, in verse 19, is that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord. The first, the most fundamental thing that drives a father in his actions, or should, that drives a biblical father, is that he wants his children to follow in faith. All right, imagine me gaining everything I want in my career, everything I want from the people around me, and yet realizing that my children have abandoned the faith and are on their way to hell because of the way I raised them. Right? Have I succeeded? Have I gained anything? If I may take this, the Bible reminds us, what shall it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? What shall it profit you, fathers, if you gain the whole world and lose your children's souls? 
Is it worth it? It's not. The first and foremost thing on God's mind is that Abraham would command his household to follow the way of the Lord, to keep the way of the Lord. Now, this does not mean that Abraham had some kind of control over his children's will, that he could force them to do it even from beyond the grave. Rather, Abraham's command over his children in the time that he had influence and control was enough to guide his children down the path of faith. That's an important distinction. We're not preaching here that fathers ought to have the right to command their children all the way into adulthood and, and beyond. Right? That's not biblical. Biblically speaking, a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. They too become one flesh. And as we've said before, a family begins when a husband and wife separate from their families and become their own unit. Right? So a father's ability to command his children ends at the very utmost part at marriage. But even before then, you realize as a father that your influence as far as command is concerned only goes so far. Because your children need to learn independence. Independence for man, dependence upon God. Abraham would command his children to keep God's ways. And so as we consider, what are we doing, fathers? How are we raising our children? Is our primary goal to see the faith that God has given us worked out in our children as well. If that's not our primary goal, we're missing the mark. We want our children to follow in God's ways. And that is why we use command. Not for our own benefit. Not for unpaid slave labor. And by the way, the idea of children being unpaid slave labor is crazy. Do you realize how expensive children are? They're very expensive, right? I did not have my children for monetary benefit because it's not going to happen. The point is, I want my children to follow me as I follow Christ. And the emphasis is on following Christ because dad's not perfect, but Christ is. And so we command our children, follow the Lord. Watch me as I follow the Lord. But if I stumble, if I fail, if I'm not going the right way, and you can see clearly in Scripture and by the conscience God has given you that I am wrong, then follow the Lord. That's why Paul made that statement. If we or any other preach any other gospel to you, right? Paul said, if you see me walk away from the faith, follow Christ not me. Fathers, that's what we ought to be telling our children. If I fall, if I do wrong, if I am sinful, and I am, follow Christ. But watch me and see what the Christian life is like. See what struggle and difficulty and heartache and sorrow, as well as joy and victory and strength, look like. Watch me as I follow the Lord. That's why we command. And then he says that he will command his family to do justice and judgment. So not only are we seeking to raise children that will follow the Lord, but we're seeking to raise children that will have an impact on this world. Ones that will stand up and say, that's unjust. Not that the government should do something about it. Not that other people ought to do something about it. Not that the church ought to do something about it. But when I have the right and the influence, I will do something about it. They will do justice, right? Abraham would raise the kind of people that you wanted sitting in a judge's seat. 
Because when a case came before them, they would not care if they were rich or poor. They would not care if they were influential or totally unknown. They would not care if they were Israelites or strangers. They would receive justice. That's the point. Justice and judgment. Judgment is the ability to see through the smoke and the mirrors that this world throws at us all the time and to realize what is right and wrong. We want to raise children so grounded in the faith that when this world throws the next new doctrine, the next new thing, the next attack at them, they say, I know what my Bible says. I believe what the scripture says, and I will follow that because I watched my father do the same thing. And I will not be persuaded. I will not be swayed from the simple truths of the word of God. Judgment, discernment comes from knowing the scriptures and living them. There are plenty of people who can argue theology with you and possibly do a better job than any of the preachers in this room and yet have no idea what it is like to actually experience faith. No idea what it's like to follow Christ. They can argue the theology. They can make logical points. They can bring up scriptures. But it doesn't matter because it hasn't affected their mind or their heart. All they have is a head full of knowledge. That's not what we want. Right? All of us could point to children that we knew, that we know, that were raised in Christian households, that knew the answers, that had the catechisms memorized, that knew the hymns, that grew up, never had faith, and walked away. And now they make fun of and attack the faith of their parents. They have no judgment. They have not walked in the way of the Lord. Because as fathers, we want our children to find personal faith. Personal faith. I've said it before, and I say it again, and I say it especially for the sake of my son who's here, and for those who will watch later on, you must have your own faith. It is not enough for Pastor Rice or Pastor Diego or anyone else in here to have faith that you watch and admire. If you don't have faith for yourself, you are lost. As a father, my greatest desire is to see my children take up the Bible for themselves, read it and understand it, not just understand the Bible, but know the God of the Word, and to follow after Him for themselves, to where when I step away because I am too old, because they move away, because they get married, for whatever reasons, when I step away, I know that he which hath begun a good work in them will perform it to the day of his appearing. That's why we command. Now, in order to command, we have to have two things from our children. Number one, we have to have authority. Our authority comes not from our children, comes not from our wives, comes not from society. It comes from God himself. God commends Abraham knowing that he will command his children. That tells us that God knew, understood, and gave the authority to Abraham to be the one who commands. That is not to say that mothers have no right of command. They do. But the father, as the head of the household, is required to and authorized to use commands to guide his family. We have seen the result 
of shallow surface fundamentalism and men that pound their chests and tell them, you will do what I tell you to do because I'm bigger and I'm stronger and I'm louder than you are. And we watch their children abandon the faith in droves and we wonder why are so many children leaving the faith? I'll tell you why, because men are using command but not the way they're supposed to. And then we see what the world is teaching. Men should not command Men should feminize themselves as much as possible and use gentle, loving words and reasoned arguments with their two-year-olds and three-year-olds. Good luck with that. They should never command because the worst creature on this planet, worse than any of these others that we could think of, is a man who says, you will do this because I am your father. We must have authority. Our authority comes from God's word. We must also have, and this is a missing piece here, respect. Respect is earned. Right? My three-year-old does not have the capacity to respect anything right now. Talk to Lydia. You'll find out. She will tell you exactly what she's thinking. She has no filter. She doesn't feel that she needs a filter. At three years old, that's to be expected as we guide them on the path, right? That's not the end result, though. Because at 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, if they still have no filter, still have learned no respect, there's a problem. How do fathers earn respect? By yelling louder? By being bigger? No, fathers earn respect by being consistent in their walk. Day in and day out, dad is the same person. He's still following the Lord. He still loves his wife. He still commands us the same things, the same rules, the same judgments. Dad is a rock. He finds what is right. He does not move. And he commands us to follow the same path. Right? The father that is one man on Sunday, dressed up, looking nice, praise the Lord, glad to be here with you, good brother, sister, so glad to see you. And then on Monday, it's black and white, loses his children's respect. Children are wonderful hypocrisy detectors. Wonderful. They're good guides for us fathers because sometimes our children will come to us and say, um... You said this, but then you did that. And before we get angry and stomp on them for having dared to disrespect us, stop and think. Because we will earn their respect if we are consistent. What should we be consistent in? Number one, we must be consistent in holiness. If there's anyone in the family that ought to be following holiness, it should be the father. How else are we going to guide them on the way of the Lord, guide them on the path that he wants them to follow? But we also must be consistent in love. Charity covers a multitude of sins. Because if my children see that I love them, not only that I would die for them, but that I would live with the thousand, thousand inconveniences that come with having children and do so gladly because I love them. Then I command with authority. Then I can tell them, stop. Turn around. 
because my three-year-old may be forced to do what I do because I'm bigger than her, and I am. My 14-year-old, yeah, I can still whip him in a fight, but lose his soul. Is it worth it? We must be consistent in holiness and love. A father commands. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. A father commands, a father teaches. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments that the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land, whether you go to possess it. Now notice, God teaches the children of Israel these commandments and says, now do them, and then that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that you may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers. He's connecting lineage here. You see this. Fathers to sons to sons' sons. That, uh, that the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Now notice. What command in particular is he drawing their attention to that they are to teach their children? Love God. Love God. That is the great commandment. Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is this. And he quoted Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. The point is, no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, when your children are there with you, you are guiding and directing them to love God. You take the whole law and you bind it up into two commandments. There, love God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength and love others as yourself. So what are we teaching our children, fathers? Are we teaching them love? Isn't this interesting? Because the world thinks that authoritative, commanding fathers teach their children hatred, teach them despair, teach them slavery. What are we supposed to be teaching them? Love. Love stands in the way and says, nothing will get to my family until I am dead and gone. And by the time I am, by God's grace, they will be strong enough to stand where I stood. I'm raising two sons. I expect there to be two people standing in the gap that I'm standing in right now. The world hates that picture. Why? Because the world wants your children. By the way, this is an aside. Why do you think that this modern culture that we're in with all the terrible things that are happening in our schools, why do you think they target our children? Because if you own a man's children, if you can take them from him at will, you own that man. You own his heart, you own his mind, you own his soul. Why do you think our kids aren't in public schools? Because the heart and soul and mind of my children is mine 
by God's grace to nurture, to direct, and to teach them to love God. It's not the world's job to teach them those things. It's mine. It's not a teacher's job to teach them those things. It's mine. And so, fathers, we teach our children. We control the narrative. Too long, the church has abandoned certain topics because they're icky and we don't like them and we're worried about, are we prudish enough? Are we not prudish enough? Where, where are we going? And we've seen men who claim to be men of God who go way overboard in one way or another, and it's wrong. Fathers, your job is to control the narrative on every subject, not for your own good, but because your children need to know what the Bible says about these things. When it comes to romantic relationships and all that's involved in that, who's telling your children the story? Is it you? Or is it the ads that they see on their devices? Is it the things they see on television, the things they see when they're streaming movies online? Who controls the narrative? When it comes to the LGBTQIA+, whatever else it may be, who controls the narrative? They're going to hear about it. They're going to see it. And one day they will be actively involved in that battle. So it's not that you can keep them from this forever, but are you controlling the narrative? Are you teaching your children? It's my responsibility to tell my children about the things that are coming. And that means I get to have lots of very uncomfortable conversations. But I better bear up because somebody's going to teach my children about things like sexuality. Am I the one, a man seeking to serve and to love God, am I the one who's going to teach them about those things or do I hand it off to the world and let them tell them what it's all about? We dare not. As a church, we dare not. As families, we dare not. We own the narrative or we should. So a father must know God's word. Verse six, these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Fathers, you ought to be the most studied, the most knowledgeable about the word of God in your home. You should be. You should know it. If you don't, if you're not, for fathers who are new converts with wives who maybe have been saved for years, catch up. You have to know the word of God. You must teach God's word, right? Verses seven and eight talk about when you teach them diligently when you're sitting down and when you're standing up, when you're walking, when you're lying down, no matter where you go, no matter what you're doing, you're teaching your children the word of God. And understand this is real, whether you're actively doing it or not. Because my children are learning about God for, with every breath I take, with everything that I do. I'm teaching my children. But also, a father lives God's word. We teach our children by living the things that we say. Ask your children, what do they know about this doctrine? What do they know about that doctrine? I had a conversation with one of my kids recently. We believe the Bible is only, the only rule of faith and practice, right? Where does the Bible say that? Um, go find it. I gave him some hints, told him where to go. But go find it because you need to discover it for yourself. I need to be living God's word and teaching it to my children. Because as we all know, if I'm not living God's word, but I'm telling them all these things, I'm filling their head with the knowledge of a religion that they're ultimately likely to reject. Or if they accept it, they'll be that kind of person who comes to church for social reasons. I'm here because I like the church I'm in. I like the songs we sing, whatever they may be. And I'm here as long as I enjoy my time here. And when it becomes socially unacceptable or socially difficult for me to keep attending church, I'm gone. 
Either way, I've lost my children. He lives God's word, and he testifies to God's works. Right at the end of this chapter, verses 20 through 25, and for time's sake, I won't read them, but he talks about when your son asks you and says, what's the meaning of these testimonies and statutes and judgments that you're to tell them what God has done, the things that you've seen God do, tell them. That puts a great responsibility on, on us, doesn't it, fathers? Because that means we need to be walking closely enough with the Lord that we can look back and say, let me tell you about what God has done for me. This was happening and God did this. This was happening and God did this. I gave this up because God told me to and this is what God did. This is what it's like to walk with Christ. Testify. So when your sons and your daughters are asking you, dads, why do we do this? We can tell them not only because the Bible says so, but let me tell you about what God has done. Let me tell you about what God has done. A father commands, a father teaches, a father trains. Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. We've mentioned this before in our study, but we come back to it because it's important. Before ever sin entered the picture, God blessed them, Genesis 1, 28, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the subdue the earth. Well, how do we do that? Teach them how to work with their hands. All right, um, you know, I helped... Uh, Arnold get a well pump yesterday for Jezreel. And I pull up and I see that Arnold's got the hood popped on the truck. And he and Jess are working together on the truck. It was a blessing to see that because I know that there's a father who's passing something down to his children. You know, and for those of us who think that, you know, Christians are, are so staid and stoical that, you know, that women can never learn a man's trade like how to turn a wrench. You know, I'd like my daughters to know how to change their own oil. Although, you know, modern cars, it's getting more difficult. With you, when you're doing things, I just set up two clotheslines and made sure that both my boys were there to help. All right? Learning how to sling a shovel may seem simple, but it's not quite as simple as you think it is. Teach them to work. Teach them to subdue the earth. Train them. Training means that you hand them a shovel and you say, now it's your turn. And they learn alongside of someone who loves them and helps them do it better. Now, how many of you ever had to hold a flashlight for your dad? You know what I'm talking about. Right? It's the most traumatic experience as a young man that you could possibly go through. Because no matter where you have that light, you're not holding it right. <clears throat> I've been there. All right, but fathers, when they're holding a flashlight for us and they keep shadowing us, we ought to be teaching them about love. No, 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 hold it like this. Like that. See how that shines that way? Train them so that they can go out and do the things you know how to do, so they can subdue this earth. 
a child or a, a father trains his children to rule and to lead. He says that we're to subdue the earth and have dominion. You know, fathers, our children will learn leadership from us. They'll learn what leadership looks like. And their view of leadership will either be bad or good, depending on whether we do it well or poorly. Because ultimately, who do we represent? God himself. My children get their first inkling, their first imagined thoughts about God the Father by watching me. That's a pretty big responsibility. So when they say God is like, the first things that come to their mind is God is like my dad. And we all have things that we've had to correct in our thinking and our way of, of approaching life because our fathers, none of them are perfect. And we have to go to the scriptures and say, my dad was like that, but God is not like that, right? We ought to be as close to God the Father as we can be because our children are learning what leadership looks like. They're learning what God the Father is like from us. They get that lesson from their fathers. So pass along your skills. Teach your children to do things. Teach them helpful things, useful things that will help them out in this world. It doesn't matter if you're teaching sons or daughters. Train them so that they have something they can do with their hands. And more importantly, train them so they know how to pray, so they know how to read, so they know how to listen, so they know how to sing. They're watching. A father protects. Look in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. The greater context of this passage, in fact, is the passage where Jesus has been working, he's doing miracles, and the Jews have begun to spread a teaching that Jesus Christ is casting out devils by the prince of devils. That's the context of this discussion. Remember, it was in the context of this particular discussion that Jesus began talking about the unpardonable sin. You can blaspheme the Son of Man, the Son of God, it will be forgiven you. But if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost and attribute the works of the Holy Ghost to Satan, you're done. It's a pretty scary concept. But in the midst of all this, Jesus is reasoning with the people there, saying, how does it even make sense that I am casting out devils, all right? That's like, that's like a man coming into his own property, having his own people, and starting to eject his own faithful servants because he feels like it. That doesn't make any sense. A house divided against itself cannot stand, he says. But he says this now. Jesus is casting out devils by his own authority, and he argues it by saying, verses 21 and 22, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, and taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted, and divideth his spoils. Now Jesus is using a very simple picture that everyone understood. A man protects his house. You see that? There's a man standing there protecting his house. Now, the one he's attributing that to in this case is Satan. Satan is here on this earth. He regards it as his own property. He will not be cast out by his property because his property is not strong enough to beat him. But here comes another, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He beats him. He throws him out, and he takes over. He spoils his goods. Jesus comes and brings salvation 
when Satan is standing at the door trying to stop him. Satan's not strong enough. But the picture that he draws the Jews' minds to is a man standing in defense of his home. A father protects. You know, I watched a uh, short clip, an interview with a child abuser, a child molester, and they asked him, what do you look for in a child when you're picking out your targets? He said, I don't look at the child. I look at the father. If the father looks like a threat, I leave the child alone. Child abusers are looking for fatherless families or feminine fathers. Fathers that pose no threat. That would, you know, eh. instead of saying, not on my watch, they're looking for the men who are disarmed and emasculated and incapable of defending themselves or their families who have been taught that standing in defense of your own family is toxic masculinity. A man protects his family, not only physically, right? And, and so I watched a man comment on this and he said, these people are looking for fathers that aren't a threat. So fathers, you better be a threat. It should be clear wherever I go, when I have a girl holding onto my hand, whether I'm walking behind my wife or in front of my wife, wherever I go, that I have my own and nobody touches it until I'm dead. And I will put up an awfully big fight until I get there. Because they don't want to mess with the people that are hard. They want the ones that are easy. Fathers, protect your home. Be a threat. Not to your family, but to those who would harm you. We ought to be that strong man that they walk by and say, mm, not that house, not that girl, not that boy, not them. A father protects against physical threats, to be certain, and teaches their children how to take risks safely because life involves risk. But a father defends against spiritual threats. Paul talks about those that sneak into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins. You remember that? And it seems rather chauvinistic, doesn't it? The point is that false teachers usually reach out to women because they know women are vulnerable when the man is not standing there saying, no, that's not right. That's not scripture. We defend our homes against physical threats to be sure, but that's the easy part of our job. The hard part is we defend our home against spiritual threats. We must be the ones standing there saying, not on my watch. And last of all, as we close, we, re we remind ourselves of this passage in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21. A father encourages. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 21 says, oops, going the wrong way. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. All of us can point to a time in our lives where our fathers provoked us to wrath. And the reason why children become discouraged when their father's provoking them to wrath is what can you do, right? When you're a child growing up in a family, what can you do? Your dad's bigger, he's stronger, he's meaner, he's uglier, whatever, right? So when these things are happening to you, there's nothing you can do. 
and it leads to discouragement and often leads to an abandonment of the faith entirely. Because that's what Christianity is like. I want no part of it. Fathers, while we cannot guarantee that our children will never harbor bitterness against us because we're not perfect and neither are they, we ought to be a great source of encouragement, not discouragement to our children. Fathers provoke their children to wrath when the fathers themselves allow their own anger to run free. Alright? I've known fathers that are angry. I've been an angry father. Not for long stretches of time, I trust. But we all know what it's like when we realize, you know what, I'm in charge. And if I just be angry for a while, it's okay because nobody can stop me. Fathers discourage their children when they allow their own anger to run free. And then when their children begin to express that same anger that they see in their father, the father goes, no, you don't. I'm dad. Deal with it. I've been there. Rather than saying, you know what? Son, I was wrong. Please forgive me. I did that in anger, and I never should have done it. Or I said the wrong thing. I did the wrong thing. Please forgive me. Now, fathers ought not to be have to, having to ask forgiveness often, but we will have to because we're not perfect. So rather than that, we ought to be a source of encouragement. Our children ought to know that we can be pleased. You know what I'm saying, fathers? Right? We should never be that dad that can never be pleased. Now think about God and all his holiness and all his perfection. What can I do to possibly please a perfect and holy God? And yet he says over and over and over again that he is pleased with the prayers of his saints. He's pleased and well pleased with thanksgiving and songs of praise. He's pleased by gifts, even simple physical monetary gifts. Paul says that the Philippians gave him a gift that was well pleasing to God. I can please my father. My children ought to know that I can be pleased as well. Not for my own pleasure. That's not the point. The point is realizing that God is not some distant, angry figure just waiting to strike us with lightning when we do wrong. Rather, he is a God who loves us and says, that was wonderful. Thank you. He's well pleased. Fathers, how are we doing? It's impossible to preach a message like this without conviction myself, but considering how intensely this world is attacking the family, we must stand and follow Christ ourselves. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you are a perfect Father. You've never done wrong. You've never disciplined us in ungodly anger. You've never committed sin. You've never told us a lie. Everything you do is yea and amen. As a Father, I look to you and ask that you would give me strength and grace. And I ask that you would grant that same strength and grace, knowledge and wisdom and all that's involved to every father here and to everyone that will be a father, that we might not only follow you ourselves, that we might teach and train and command our children to follow after you as well, that you might receive the honor and glory. And Lord, that their souls would be secure for all eternity. Bless us now, we pray, as we go into the morning service as a father that delights in giving good gifts to his children. Give us those gifts, we pray. Amen. Lord bless you.